The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Catherine Badgley. She's an associate professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology and the Sustainable Food Systems Initiative at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Dr. Badgley received her B.A. in geology from Radcliffe College, Harvard University, and a master's in forestry and environmental studies and a Ph.D. in biology from Yale. I had the pleasure of hearing Dr. Badgley speak at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics meeting in Nashville, Tennessee earlier this year. She presented on the topic of biodiversity as key to achieving an abundance of wholesome foods from healthy ecosystems. So we're going to be exploring those topics. Dr. Badgley is the author of numerous publications. She's the recipient of many awards. And in July, she wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal, making the case that organic food can indeed feed the world, why and how. Her research interests include biogeography, paleoecology, and sustainable agriculture. And we'll be happily exploring these topics and how they tie into our food system right now. Dr. Badgley, welcome. Thank you, Melinda. Thank you for having me. Well, your presentation was so interesting, and I think that maybe we should all understand more what biodiversity is and why it is so critical to our existence on the planet, let alone our food system. Biodiversity is a shorthand word that we biologists use to refer to different kinds of diversity of living organisms. And we find that it's important to recognize that some aspects of biodiversity refer to, say, genetic diversity within species that accounts for the individual variation in all of us and in the foods that we eat and the kind of wildlife that we encounter in the natural world. Biological diversity, or biodiversity for short, also refers to the different kinds of plants and animals and microbes that inhabit the world today, the organisms we typically refer to as different species. And also, biodiversity refers to the variation in ecosystems and their important processes that we find around the world today. And those processes are often of great service to humankind by providing many of the essential, both the sustenance that we have, clean water, clean air, abundant oxygen, climate modulation, a whole bunch of things that we often take for granted, but as we look at them more closely, are turned out to be very important to human existence. In looking around my particular landscape, I live in the Midwest. You two are based in the Midwest. I don't know about you, but I am concerned about what seems to be water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. In other words, when I drive through Midwestern farmland, I see a lot of corn and soy, but not so much anything else that I would consider to be food that I would want to eat. 
What kind of risk does that create for us? The kind of landscape you describe, which I can also find in parts of my area of southeastern Michigan, is very typical of the primary model of agriculture that we find, particularly in the United States, but also over other parts of the world, what we might call green revolution agriculture, sometimes it's called industrial agriculture. And this is a form of farming that relies heavily on monocultures, typically over very large areas, and mechanization, patented seeds, synthetic fertilizers and synthetic pesticides, and a formula for raising those particular crops that are often then supported in the United States by various forms of support payments through the Farm Bill programs over the years that have come to dominate our agricultural landscapes. Some of the concerns that we might express as residents and and citizens in this country are that a lot of those foods are not directly going to feed people at all. They're either going to feed animals, into livestock feed, or going into biofuels, or into high fructose corn syrup, much of which then comes back to us in the form of sugary drinks. But this is a relatively recent phenomenon in U.S. history from about the 1950s to the present time. And if we could go back in time, we would, driving over those same landscapes, we would see much greater diversity on our farms themselves all over the country. And that would have been partly a different both agricultural model and also a different economic model of farming where a lot of the emphasis was on providing subsistence to farm to families and also selling food within local communities and then some of it certainly for redistribution export within the United States and even farther beyond and those kinds of agriculture were somewhat more resilient to both short-term climate variations to pests that came along to the coming and going of droughts and El Nino years particularly when they operated on a somewhat smaller scale. The small scale is important because when it's small scale, that means typically there is a different kind of crop being grown in these adjacent small-scale packages. And that kind of pattern across a landscape is more resilient, particularly to pests and diseases, than having vast monocultures, which are perfect habitats in which diseases and pests can occur in, and become in very large numbers and therefore threaten an entire crop. Mm-hmm. I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to look at this kind of landscape and perhaps ask questions, especially when you are of a generation where you can still look back and know what had been. And I'm just curious, was it just really savvy marketing that moved us from a place of greater resilience to one that puts us at greater risk and certainly not sustainability. Savvy marketing may have played a role. I think that it was more than that. There were certainly roles that various agribusinesses played in terms of both developing hybrid and then eventually patented seeds. It also played a role in developing the specific fertilizers as well as a wide range of pesticides the history of particularly of pesticide development is closely tied to the development of chemicals used in warfare and even some of the very same chemicals have been somewhat repurposed then for uses in agriculture but it's not just the agribusinesses alone probably could not have accomplished this transformation by themselves there was a great deal of support from governments and also foundations as there was 
perceived to be a need to feed the world with a vastly increased yields. And all of that gave rise to what we call the whole Green Revolution agriculture package, which came about during the 1950s and beyond, but building on a number of developments in chemical and agrochemicals that emerged out of World War II. And then because the yield increases were so evident, then that became a very attractive package to spread throughout the country and also in many other countries. So it became even quite a part of our our foreign aid policy Mm -hmm. as well, and that's one of the ways in which the Green Revolution spread to many other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. So what seemed like a good idea at the time seems as if we need to take a second look and say maybe there were some unintended consequences and some costs that went along with this increased production. And how do we reframe this discussion? You're right that there were costs, and there certainly is what we now recognize as a series of environmental costs, particularly with the scale at which industrial agriculture has practiced. For example, there's the routine use of synthetic fertilizers, which is an important part of that process because, at least from the perspective of farmers using this package, it's important to deliver, for example, nitrogen and phosphorus and other macronutrients that just at the time that the plants initially start growing. But because it's rarely the case that the plants can absorb even half of what is actually applied to fields, a lot of, for example, fertilizer then either goes elsewhere in the soil, runs off into the local waterways, and then concentrates either in ponds, lakes, or eventually, as as is famous in the Midwest, makes its way into the Mississippi River drainage and is now largely responsible for the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. And likewise, we've seen a number of consequences of heavy reliance on pesticides. Even though it's quite clear that pesticides reduce the impact of pest populations on crops, ironically, the amount that we still lose to pests is about the same now as it was before pesticides started to be abundantly used. And the main reason for that is that the pests, which are most typically various kinds of insects, are able to evolve resistance quite rapidly. And so most pesticides only become effective for about a decade or two. And then there is substantial evolution of resistance, and then the the companies developing those pesticides must develop something else, either a variant on the original pesticide or something altogether new. And this whole cycle has, has been called the pesticide treadmill. And it means now that we have a vast number of, of pesticides that are in use in agriculture. We, we know many of them have been thoroughly tested, but many more have not in terms of their effects on other aspects of the ecosystem and also even in human health. And we're beginning to find that those some of those effects are more pervasive and more subtle than were originally perceived. So all of that is to say that there are good reasons to question the overall efficacy of the system. And in the light of that, there has been a huge increase over the last, I'd say even actually over the last 30 years, growing steadily through the decades in not so much going back to the past, but rather taking some of the practices from the past, combining them with new ecological insights and understanding, and then developing more biodiverse, small-scale farms in which 
that many of the principles that we find at work in natural ecosystems are brought into farms themselves. For example, growing multiple crops at the same time in fields or in close succession, very careful crop rotations, companion plants in which one plant may be a nitrogen fixer, the other plant may be a heavy nitrogen user but can provide shade or some other benefit to the companion and using natural enemies to control pests rather than heavy reliance on pesticides. So those are just a few of the examples of some of the principles that we find in nature for how so much diversity is able to coexist in nature that we can then bring right into our agricultural systems. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting. You make so many important points there. One is this notion that if we don't continue on this linear path, that somehow we will be returning to what our grandfathers did. And I really like the way you describe we're going to learn from what our grandfathers did, but then use these modern ecological insights to propel ourselves forward to a more sustainable existence. So I think that's a very important frame through which to look at where we want to be, you know, 10, 20 years from now. The other thing that I think is important to talk about is that this whole narrative about how we're going to feed the world. And at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics meeting, you mentioned that the global food system generates close to 3,000 calories per person per day. And I believe that was data from the Food and Agriculture Organization in 2015. So feeding the world with this ecologically based system makes a lot more sense And it would certainly put more people to work and bring our rural communities back to life as well. So how do we move from this fossil-dependent system where a lot of investments have been made, certainly, in in equipment and land, and change course and say, you know, now we're going to start perhaps giving incentives to more of these smaller-scale, more biodiverse farms? Is that one of the ways you think we can move forward? Well, you've posed some really important questions. Just backing up a little bit, I'll say that the fact that we, at least in aggregate over the entire world, are able to supply presently almost 3,000 calories per person per day, it means that we have the resilience and the capability, the potential here to be thinking about how to reconfigure the food production aspects of our food system, that figure of 3,000 calories per day does not include the 45% of the global grain supply that is actually diverted to livestock feed and biofuels and high fructose corn syrup, although high fructose corn syrup does come back into our diets. And those other feeds do as well, transformed, though, through at least one other level in the food chain in the form of livestock. The other area that represents some potential resilience of the food system is that a a shocking amount of our food is wasted. Mm -hmm. And that's much of that is post-farm waste. So in other words, that is part of the 3,000 calories per person per day that is simply, for a variety of reasons that that differ depending on the society, is wasted either on on the homes, it's wasted in food stores, it's wasted in restaurants, it's wasted during processing. And that seems, essentially, I think we could consider that an untapped resource that could be managed much better. But as far as how to transform 
certainly there are ways to provide more incentives. And in a way, I think already the fact that organic agriculture, as an example of a kind of more sustainable agriculture, has the incentive of commanding a higher price. And it does that because most people know that organic farmers have to face certification charges and the, that, the process of certification. Organic agriculture does, as you mentioned, involve more labor, sometimes seen by critics as a bad thing. I think you and I both see that as potentially an advantage because it offers, it means that there are always going to be more more jobs in both in rural communities and even in urban settings where urban agriculture is growing. And so incentives are coming partly through the sale of organic foods because then organic farmers are able to to reap those price premiums. But it would certainly be, there are two other forms of incentives that I think could be really useful in the United States at least. And one would be to reallocate the nature of subsidies that are actually going to farmers away from the major commodity crops, corn, soybeans, cotton, a few others, and reallocating those more toward fruits and vegetables, which are grown in abundance on organic farms and are part of most USDA food and dietary guidelines as something that we all need to be eating more of. Right now, the subsidies to the commodity crops are about 75% of the, the farm bill subsidies to directly to farms, and the food and the fruits and vegetables are getting something like 5 to 7%. If we readjusted those numbers, that could potentially provide more incentives and financial support, particularly to people who are trying to transition from industrial agriculture to organic methods. And then the other area that where I think there could be a great boost to transformation would be in the research dollars. If we look at the history of research dollars that have gone from the USDA into agriculture, almost all of those dollars have gone for the support, supporting a research in industrial methods. Very little of that money has gone into sustainable or including organic methods. And if there was a greater investment of research into organic methods, then that would also greatly enable the application of these ecological practices and the ecological knowledge and even experiments in many different parts of the country and eventually parts of the world so that we can understand even better how to use ecological principles to grow abundant, healthy food. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Dr. Catherine Badgley. She's an associate professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology and the Sustainable Food Systems Initiative at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Dr. Badgley, I have to ask about the dietary guidelines. I'm sure you, as well as myself, we were both disappointed to hear that this push towards including a discussion of sustainability in all of the different factors we've been discussing up until this point will not be included in the 2015 edition of our dietary guidelines. And yet, I'm of the belief that we are moving forward despite those constraints, especially in the area of food waste. But if you were at the table to craft the dietary guidelines What would you interject there? What would you like the Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Agriculture to know about your areas of expertise that you would like folded into these guidelines? Wow. 
That's a great question, and it is a big disappointment that that, that environmental sustainability was not included. I know that was quite a big public discussion, and at one point it looked to me as though from some of the messages I was getting, so it had a very good chance of being included. I think I would reinforce the arguments that it's important to include environmental sustainability for a number of reasons, one of them being that a healthy ecosystem is going to be necessary for any kind of food production by any method going forward and that we should be doing everything we can in order to support and maintain and even improve the health of our agricultural ecosystems. And so in that respect, it's extremely important to have that be a very high priority goal, I think, of our entire food system. But I would also try to make the point that it's very hard to divorce food production from the economic lives of farmers, farm workers, and rural communities, and more and more now even urban agriculture that is springing up all over the country and certainly all over the world. And so that healthy food and the farms on which the food is grown is not just a matter of calories and micronutrients for the consumers, but it's also a matter of the places where they live and the places that they engage in in the ways in which they learn about civil society. And so I think that it's always important to stress that food and farming are not just about food production. They're about many different aspects of life. In some ways, they are in production to the natural world. They're often our initial entree often into understanding about these ecosystem processes that end up supporting so many different kinds of human activities. And so to find ways of weaving all those threads into our dietary guidelines is simply a recognition of the very holistic nature of food in not only here in the United States, but really in all human societies. Mm -hmm. With your extensive background beyond food, really, in looking at the whole biological systems research and paleoecology, tell me your thoughts on the role of genetic engineering in agriculture. Well, let me try to clarify that phrase for you because there are different terminologies that end up being a bit confused in both the technical and even the public discourse about genetic engineering. A number of people object to the use of transgenic organisms in agriculture, and this is a particular kind of genetic engineering in which the genetic material from one kind of organism is then inserted into a very distantly related organism, such as genes from a bacterium being inserted into a tomato. There are other kinds of genetic engineering that are entirely within species where the genetic engineering may be a matter of tinkering with a single gene in the very same plant, and That seems to be at at least at a different scale in in terms of its potential to be a harmonious kind of genetic change within the the genome of the organisms that are being involved. There have been concerns about in the transgenic organisms that this would have unintended consequences in terms of the life histories of the transgenic organisms. That seems not to have played out in quite as much in terms of all the potential concerns that arose couple of decades ago, although there have been some unintended kind of disasters in the farm context. That is, not all of those transgenic organisms ended up behaving as their designers intended them to be. There have also been concerns about health consequences 
And there have been some, I think some of those studies have raised serious concerns, but maybe not to the extent that some of the, the claims have been made. Environmentally, I think for myself, being somebody very interested in biodiversity and ecosystem consequences, I think there have been some concerns. For example, it's been shown that some transgenic plants have a greater propensity to outcross with wild relatives than the non-transgenic varieties of the same crops. You know, that poses a potential problem for transgenes essentially being transmitted throughout wild populations. I think there are other sort of socio-political concerns when transgenic crops are essentially being heavily marketed or even almost forced on populations that have expressed an interest not to have them. And I think that's where a lot of a lot of reputations have been seriously sullied. And it's possible that the actual biotechnology will have and will in the future have some very important utility. But, and I think that the, the biggest concern in terms of the ways in which transgenic organisms have been used thus far is that they have, in the United States, they've led largely to an, an increase in the use, use of certain herbicides, for example, for glyphosate-tolerant crops, for the use of BT crops, uh, which have the toxin from the bacterium Bacillus thuringiensis engineered into them. They are being used on such a massive scale. They are promoting resistance to BT, which is then taking what was once a widely used, organically approved pesticide, they're rendering it ineffective. So the main thing about the way these uh, the transgenic crops have actually been designed in the United States is that essentially they're keeping us on the pesticide treadmill. And that is in itself a goal that is part of the industrial agriculture model, but it is definitely not a part of the sustainable agriculture model. And then the social concerns in terms of how heavily these are being marketed to cultures that have expressed an interest in not having them is, I think, giving some agribusinesses a black eye. Mm -hmm. Well, you've given us a lot to think about, and our time has unfortunately evaporated. With one minute left, do you want to leave our listeners with any send-off message, perhaps about something that I didn't ask you? I would just say, in addition to thank you for having me, Melinda, I would just say that we are seeing a lot of transformation in the food system right now, more than I would have thought possible 20 years ago, with a lot of interest and support and experimentation in different forms of sustainable agriculture. And I think those have the potential to carry us into a much more sustainable and human-friendly very supportive, very democratic kind of food system. So I'm very excited about the future. That's wonderful. That's a wonderful note to leave us with. I will give our listeners a link to the excellent piece that you wrote for the Wall Street Journal. Is there another link that you would like our listeners to have? Well, there are some very interesting things that are going on all around the world in terms of food movements. And perhaps you might want to take a look at foodfirst.org.org mm-hmm. for this is more for looking at food movements at, uh, that are supporting small-scale farmers. Great. And um, then there are several very important web- similar websites on the Food and Agriculture Organization as well. Great. Well, I will provide some links for those for our listeners 
who have had their interest piqued to learn more and also have a positive mindset about the future. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Catherine Badgley, who has really opened our minds to the topics of biodiversity. She holds a Ph.D. in biology from Yale, Master's in Forestry and Environmental Studies, and a BA in geology. She is an associate professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology and the Sustainable Food Systems Initiative at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. In closing, I also want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you again, Dr. Badgley. It's been a pleasure to have you with me. You're most welcome. 